Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Saturday, January 1st. Before we get to today's podcast, kicking off our coverage of the 2022 tennis season, we just want to wish the happiest and healthiest of New Year's to all of our Crack Rackets listeners out there. I know I say this on each and every podcast. I mean it sincerely every time I say it. We would not be able to attempt the things we do here at Crack Rackets without your support. Of course, it is our mission to ensure you remain the most well-informed, best-educated fans in the business. We're able to podcast day in, day out. We're able to try new things such as broadcasting the various levels of the tennis world because of that support we get from you. So on behalf of all of us here at Crack Rackets, Happy New Year. We hope you're enjoying some time with your family, getting ready for the kickoff of the 2022 season. With that in mind, Westoff, hit me with a Happy New Year sound effect. But of course, on today's show, we start a look at the 2022 professional tennis season. Of course, it's crazy to think, but folks, we've already got some professional action underway. ATP Cup officially beginning over in Australia. Of course, you look on the challenger level, we'll have a couple of challengers getting to rock it, ready to rock and roll on Monday. We'll have ITF events always happening across the world. College tennis less than a few weeks away. With all of that in mind, I could think of no better guest to join us on our first show of the year than today's guest, who of course you know best as a returning champion here to our Crack Racket shows. Of course, he has a spot near and dear to our heart as Crack Rackets wouldn't be where it is today without his immense efforts over the years. Of course, you may know him best as a former standout at Denison, now the head coach of the Rockhurst men's and women's tennis team. I hope he hears the pride in my voice when I say that. Of course, it is a pleasure to welcome back to the show our friend James Foster McDonald. Jamie, welcome back to the mini break, my friend. How are you doing today? Appreciate it. Appreciate it. That's good. Hey, you look, you got to start off a year, right? This is the perfect way to do it. So 2022 already hit me with a an aggressive nosebleed this morning. Uh, <laughs> incredibly cold weather, frustrating winds, you name it. But uh, I'm getting on the pod first day of the year, so can't ask for much more there. Oh, it is such a pleasure to have you back, my friend. And yeah, it is crazy to think, and obviously now you are amongst the coaching ranks. Did you get the three weeks off you needed in that dead period time, or has it really felt like no time off? I'm sure you've been busy recruiting. Yeah, it's been busy, man. A lot of recruiting. We also had a weird thing with uh, with a, a positive COVID result um, mm-hmm. that made us stop in our fall season and then extend it uh, like 10 to 10 days to two weeks into November. So weird sort of dicey situation there. The fall season got slightly extended. Uh, so my break was cut a little bit shorter, but no, it's all good. A lot of recruiting. Uh, everybody is hopefully back home doing what they need to training wise. And yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to kick things off here um, in January. It's gonna be fun. People don't, this is actually part of our power five coaching interview series. People don't realize what they're about to get into, but obviously this is yeah. Open endorsement of all things Rockhurst tennis. Sincerely, you're not going to find a division two pro further on the rise than my boys and girls over at Rockhurst. With that said, I do have to pick your brain for a second because I have this pet theory now, and of course it, it's been developed more and more as I talk to these head coaches. I feel like X's and O's is like 20% of a job of being a college tennis head coach. Have you experienced that as well? 
Yeah, man. Twenty percent usually. Yeah, sometimes that sounds real good. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, it's 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 so dependent on time of the year, obviously. Uh, but yeah, man, those days where you can just actually focus on what needs to be done on court and how you're going to improve. I mean, you take that as a win. Um, you know, with all the other administrative stuff you got to deal with, it, it's just it's really nice when you can actually just focus on the tennis right you get on court you do what you love and and hopefully uh you know make your players better and and, and love their time in college so it's phenomenal um it's been a ton of fun thus far and so i'm looking forward to, to see what we can do this is the first full year that i'll um, have these teams but uh, but yeah man it's fun and yeah there's a lot of other stuff in that other 80 percent you mentioned no doubt Oh, I, people are going to be – they're going to learn quickly. This is going to become a Rockhurst uh, podcast. We're just going to cover your results week in, week out. We'll talk about the developments because, again, I know how good you are going to be at college coaching. I cannot wait to see how your teams perform, as you mentioned, in your first full year at the helm. But, of course, that will not be the subject of today's podcast. What we wanted to do today is talk about some of the most intriguing players as we look towards 2022. And of course, intriguing is such a subjective category. Everyone is going to be interested in various things as these players emerge. Of course, for so many, you're looking for who those next Grand Slam champions are going to be. Who will be the most significant players of this 2020s decades as we shift away from the era of the big three, as we shift away from the era of Serena Williams. And it does feel like, Jamie, as we enter 2022, and I want to start here with this topic, it's something we have talked about so frequently over the years on these podcasts at Crack Rackets. It's no longer a generational shift, in my opinion. The generations have shifted. It feels like those new faces, they emerged in 2021, and I think they're ready to dominate in 2022. Let's start there more broadly. In terms of the generational shift, has it happened? Like, we're no longer experiencing it. We're no longer seeing it emerge. I feel like we're finally there, Jamie. Yeah, well, I mean, especially on the women's side, it's been an interesting landscape the last couple of years, has it not? Um, and you look especially at Grand Slam results, and, you know, you always love to use the word parody, and, and that's great. I think that puts arguably more of a positive spin on it than uh, than maybe I would have with, with my lens. But regardless, yeah, I mean – simple way to say it is it's anyone's ball game right every time a tournament shows up you can just plug and play names um and cool things can happen right you don't know who's going to win on a given day um there are certain people who have begun to assert themselves as let's call it somewhat dominant right i mean obviously that's how they rise up the rankings but um that sort of dominance that we saw from people like serena you know five years ago plus now um it's just not there right and so it makes it it makes it really fascinating but yeah i mean that's definitely some of the stuff i'm going to get into when i'm talking about you know people i'm interested to talk about is okay that's the landscape who's going to make the most of it right because there's so much opportunity especially on that women's side because nobody has a true stranglehold on all the points and all the tournaments you nailed it right on the head and obviously you look at the back half of last season you had the Pliskova resurgence the Kerber resurgence obviously what Barbara Krejcikova was able to do from the French Open onwards what Annette Conteve was able to do down the home stretch of the season Belinda Bencic winning the Olympics rallying from there Radakanu at the US Open of course Garbine Muguruza right when no one expected it and Jamie I, again I, I think I cited you on those podcasts in the time but we have talked about it almost 
two years now, three years, however long it's been since we first had you on the show. The moment you don't expect Garbin Muguruza to do well, that's when she rips off a year-end finals title, right? The moment you expect her to do well, that's when you might see that second-round, third-round loss. And so you're, you're absolutely right. Parody is the name of the game on the women's side. On the men's side, and I feel like I'm obliged to ask you this question because if you're not speculating about the vaccine status of Novak Djokovic, if you're not speculating on whether he's going to play the Australian Open, are you even in tennis media? I suppose I'll give you the two seconds to answer that question. Do we see... Novak Djokovic emerge at the Australian Open, uh, play the Australian Open, excuse me, and B, you know, is he the favorite if he does? Yeah, it's a weird one, right? I mean, it's just the constant speculation has been, uh, <laughs> has, has been exhausting. Yeah. It's so outrageous. It's yeah, the it's, dumbest it fucking thing in the world. Exhausting. No doubt about it. Um, look, I, I think if he's in there, yeah, you have to think. You know, he's the favorite, uh, maybe not as heavy as in years past, just given the form that we've seen other people in, what we've seen Medvedev be able to do on the large stage against him now. Um, without him, you know, I, it won't it won't feel the same as the 2020 U.S. Open did and how weird that was. Uh, I think it'll be different because some of those top guys have asserted themselves. The 2020 U.S. Open was a very odd one. It was just this wide-open thing, and it was almost like nobody could quite grasp it, and it was just who was left standing at the end, and ultimately it was team, right? So this is going to be a little bit different in that sense. If Djokovic plays, I would say, yeah, he's got to be the favorite. Um, but if not, I- I'm still really excited for that tournament, and, and a lot of those young guys who are itching um, to make deep runs are going to have good opportunities to do so. Yeah, no, the best is how you're like, well, I heard his dad was talking to a plumber who reported to that random out in Serbia who says he's not going to be playing this year and it's just like all right what are we doing with our sources here do you really need to report that well there was a hitting session between him and his kid and he's using the Australian open balls so maybe he is planning to travel over over maybe he is going to get a medical exemption it's just like at this point I am so done with all of the speculating, and I'm just waiting for that official confirmation, whether it be from Craig Tiley, whether whether it be from the Djokovic camp, whether he is going to play or not. But again, that is the topic, I suppose, right now in tennis. So we led off with a discussion on it. To your point, it is it regardless of if he plays or not, should be a very, very fun men's singles event in Australia. But again, that is not the theme of today's discussion. What we wanted to do is name some of our most intriguing players here as we look towards the start of the professional tennis season. I gave you an assignment. I'm going to stick to that assignment as well. I said, pick two men, pick two women that you are most interested to see compete on court this season. That is the exercise we are going to do. We'll spend about five minutes, I'll say, on each of these players as we break down what intrigues us, uh, what what is so intriguing, excuse me, about them, how we think they may fare in 2022. With that in mind, Jamie, guests first always. Chivalry is not dead on this podcast. Give me the first woman you are most intrigued by as we enter this 2022 season. And of course, also give me your philosophy as you were looking towards making your list. Yeah. um, You know, I will say generally there were two on the men's side that immediately came to mind. Uh, On the women's side, it was a little bit different um, because I think there's just so many right answers here. Uh, So one for me, and and I'll put this one as my first, is world number eight, uh, Paula Badosa. Um, Interesting. I I think 
it's just a very odd dynamic, right? Because she's eight in the world, but go look at her Grand Slam finishes, right? The best one we've seen is a French Open quarter. Uh, hasn't been passed the round of 64 at either hard court slam, but you go and watch something like the WTA Finals, proves that she can play at that level. You see her at Indian Wells rip off wins over, you know, Vika, Killing, Coco Goff, Jabour, Kerber, Kredge, uh, Yastrzemska. By the way, I've completely gone to calling Kredjikov a Kredge, so that's for you there. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, so like you've seen the level of play, and it's been exceptional at times, but I think for me, it's like, all right, can we translate this into the grand slam results that I would like to see? Um, and especially on the hardcore majors, let's get past the round of 64, especially if you're in the top 10, you should be doing that consistently. So that's one for me there. And I think it's really going to be really interesting to see how she fares here in 2022. Yeah. I think it's a really good pick and you look for Paula Bedosa. I think what was so fascinating about her season was she wasn't particularly elite at anything, right? You look for her in terms of the whole percentage. She was at, I think, 72.7%, which is a number good. For top 20 on the WTA Tour, but not top 10, not top 15. She's 20th on that list. You look for her in terms of break percentage. Again, she was very good overall with that break percentage. You look for her for the season in 2021, I believe, Bedosa uh, at 38%. That's, you know, actually 1.1% below the tour average of top 50 players. Of course, that average skewed, I think, by how strong some of the players at the top were. You look for her number, I believe that's 25th overall amongst top 50 players so she's one of 14 players to be top 25 club didn't you miss the top 25 club jamie did you miss these sorts of rants yeah. over the past couple of months <laughs> yeah but you know again to your point 43 and 17 last season 72 percent win percentage that's exceptional she belonged at the year-end finals and obviously for her to capture the indian wells title at the end of the year as funky as indian wells was she beat Goff, she beat Kredge, which I'm totally going to steal from you. Love Sweet. that. She beat Kerber, she beat Jabour, she beats Azarenka 7-6 in the third in that final. That's as legit as it gets. Like, to your point, that is not a fluke run. That's not like, well, this person pulled out and, you know, by the end she's playing, you know, Rebecca Pedersen in the final. That is not what happened. She played the best, she beat the best. She's very good at everything. I agree with you. Why is she so intriguing? Is she elite at anything, Jamie? When you look at her game, what are the biggest strengths? What are the things that could allow her to sustain this top eight ranking? Because again, now, you know, she is a top 10 player. She will be a top seed. The draws will open up for her. Second weeks of Grand Slams are no longer, you know, the cherry on top. They're the expectation entering 2022, a year, by the way, where, you know, she's turning, I think, 25 years old yeah. by the end of the season. It's her age 24 season. This is when the prime begins. So how does she take that next step this year? Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of it to me doesn't even come down to, you know, the tennis itself. Um, I think, first of all, having a result like this at Indian Wells is huge for her mentally and confidence-wise. And as we saw at the U.S. Open, on the WTA, anyone can win. Right. It doesn't it doesn't just come down to strokes right now. It's not like there's somebody at the top who is straight up just hitting everyone off the court. It's not like that. So you get yourself into matches, you lean on, you know, the confidence that you might have from previous good results. In her case, look some of these things that happened deep in twenty twenty one. Now she uses that when she's in a tight match in twenty twenty two to say, Hey, I can get across the finish line. Um, especially at the Grand Slam level. Let's, you know, maybe not lose a second round you have no business losing, right? So I, I think for me it <laughs> one of her strengths is just being able to figure out the tight matches, right? Because there are so many times where when she stays in a match, she wins, 
right? That three-setter against Azarenka mm -hmm. that you mentioned, right? A, that was a complete grind back and forth. You go all the way back to what she did uh, Western and Southern in Cincinnati. Um, that first round match she plays against Martet, she wins 11-9 in a breaker, right? She just figures out how to win it. She sticks around after losing the first set. She wins it. Okay, the next round she plays Sabalenka, wins that in a third set breaker as well. So she knows how to navigate these things. And once she is in a match, she does a phenomenal job of staying in it and just winning the biggest points, right? And so I think that's part of the reason why things don't show up as spectacular on the stat sheet. Because for her, it's not about that. It's when the big point comes and when she's locked in in a tight match like that, she figures out a way to win those big points and get across. So that's what's huge. We had a conversation off mic talking about, you know, your team, and I'm not going to point out any names, but you talked about how you're stressing, look, guys, we want to compete in the center third of the court. I know that's a drill you're doing, right? Just half of tennis is staying alive, putting yourself in a position to win the point, not offering up the error, not offering up the easy points for your opponent. And Paula Bedosa does not offer easy points. Now, to your uh, broader point there, you know, she goes 21-6 and six against opponents ranked outside the top 50, 22 and 11 against top 50, 12 and 5 against top 20, 6 and 5 against top 10. She was excellent against just about any opponent she faced last season. The numbers stay pretty constant from a first serve win percentage, second serve win percentage. She's around, you know, 67 to 69% in that first serve win percentage, uh, regardless of the level of her opponent. Now, what is interesting, she was 16 and 6 in third sets last season, Jamie. She was 4-0, and excuse me, 5-0 and in 7-6 third sets as well. So she gets to that 6-all, you know, third set breaker. She's just not offering you the easy points. To beat Paula Bedosa, you have to beat her. And while there are players with the weapons like a Sabalenka and, you know, some of the other bigger hitters at the top of the game who certainly when they play their best tennis, you might like their ceiling a little bit more than Bedosa, you're absolutely right. The floor of Paula Bedosa, match in, match out, point in, point out, is outstanding. And so, you know, again, from a regression standpoint, 16 and 6 in third sets feels awfully hard to duplicate, but she puts herself in a position to be competing in those final stages of matches. I agree with you, and, like, you know, everyone's serve will continue to get better, and I think she does have the potential with her body type to have plus power on that serve. Obviously, she's not going to overwhelm you with her ground strokes, but she's fluid in the outer thirds, good on both forehand, backhand side, when she's on the run, when she's able to set. I think moving, you know, again, I think for her, the weapon's going to be because of how consistent she is and how fluid she is, taking time away from opponents, moving forward, getting to the net. That's her pathway to shortening points. But yeah, I mean, Paula Bedosa, I don't know, I guess it does it feel feels like there's another gear for her to get to, or is it just about sustaining for you in 2022? I think there's another gear, and I think because, look, she already has, what's, what's phenomenal here is she has the foundation, like you mentioned. Once she gets to yeah. that, once she gets to that tight spot in a match, she knows how to figure it out and win it. And a lot of times, yes, that is putting the onus on her opponent and saying, hey, you gotta beat me, right? Um, but she just figures out how to weigh, how to how to wiggle out of bad situations, right? And I mean, let's go back to that final at Indian Wells where she played Azarenka, unreal match. There were like twelve breaks of serve, right? And so it's just constantly going back and forth. The momentum is just complete roller coaster, and she still finds a way to steady it and get it done. Um, and that doesn't mean she's going to win every single tight match she's in. Obviously not. But I mean, you saw the stats yourself. She is great when she gets herself into that situation. So to me, the fact that she can lean on those things, when she gets into a tight match at, uh, let's say, the Australian Open, right? Or let's say the French. Mm -hmm. 
those are the sort of things that you can think about and say, hey, I've been here before, I can do this. And so to me, that's the biggest part that that's gonna unlock for her. Again, it's not actually about the strokes. I think it's about getting, hey, can I get a big time result and make this deep run at a major? Because then that will unlock it for the future for her. Absolutely, and she doesn't have many points to defend through this, nope. you know, really March at all. You know, first round loss in Australia. You know, she's got a Lyon semifinal from the first week of March. That's essentially it till the clay court season. Now, there's a yep. lot of points to defend in the clay court season, but she's got an entire first third of the cor- uh, of the season, whether it be Indian Wells, Miami, if they're back in the normal places of the schedule. And yeah, she's got that Indian Wells final, but how they're doing the points is all funky this year, so who really knows how that's going to come off her record. I-, I think that's a really good call because she is someone, again, can she sustain? Will she be part of that group? There may be other young players on the WTA Tour with bigger weapons, but I say it all the time, I think modern tennis is about minimizing weaknesses she has minimized those weaknesses now on the flip side Jamie and this is how we can get to my first pick here and I promise we're not going to spend that long on every player otherwise we're going to be here for three hours but maybe the inverse of Paula Bedosa is my number one pick here and that's Elena Rabakina who obviously you know Jamie I have been fixated on for quite a bit of time here and here's why you look at the serving numbers for Elena Rabakina she finished the 2021 season sixth in hold percentage amongst top 50 WTA players. She's holding 76.4% of the time. That's 6% better than your average top 50 player. On the flip side, she finished 48th amongst top 50 players in break percentage. She's breaking serve 31.4% of the time. That's, again, about 6% lower than your average top 50 player. Of course, you look for Elena Rabakina. It was a successful season by a bunch of different metrics. Struggled at the start of the year, but quarterfinals Roland Garros before losing 9-7 in the third to Anastasia Pavlachenkova. You know, fourth round Wimbledon, she loses a tight three-set match to Arena Sabalenka. Makes the bronze medal match in Tokyo. Loses in three sets to Halep at the U.S. Open. I thought she found her rhythm at the end of last season, and we talk about weapons, Jamie. She's got the weapons. She's got the first serve. When she's connecting with the ball cleanly, oh my God, can she hit through just about any player on the court. You know I love Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. She's not quite a member at the country club yet. She's allowed golfing privileges, meal privileges on the weekend. We're grooming her for future membership. There's a lot to like about Elena Rabakina, who it's worth remembering doesn't turn 23 years old till June of this year, currently number 14 in the rankings. That's a career high for her as well. I just think there was a degree of consistency we saw from Rabakina at the end of last season that if she can sustain that, especially early in 2022, we talk about ceilings. Her ceiling is as high as just about any of these players because she does have the weapons, and I think she's got fluidity for her size as well. Where are you on Rabakina? Yeah, uh, definitely a different conversation than somebody like Bedosa, but always fun to chat <laughs> yeah. about somebody who, you know, they're going to make the match happen on their racket, and it's going to be on their terms. Um, yeah, you know, so I, I think the end of the season, look, like especially when you talk about the fall, she had some good results, um, and that was awesome dropped off a little bit there um you know lost in the first round at indian wells and after that gets you know beat pretty routinely by uh, von drusova at kremlin cup so i don't know exactly where she's at in her game to be honest i, know, I think we see her play tomorrow in adelaide i believe um mm-hmm. and, and so i'm excited to see where she's at but really the last time we saw her 
um, was she, she had to retire against Owens Jabor in the Chicago uh, tournament, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, I'm not really sure where she's at, but in terms of sort of electric young talent to watch, she's got to be at the top of the list for the WTA, no doubt. Yeah, by the way, you mentioned that Adelaide. Bedosa, Azarenka, round mm-hmm. one of Adelaide. I know. Like, come on now. Indian Wells final rematch. We are back, folks. Tennis has officially returned. To your point on, you know, Rabakina, 21-6 and six against opponents ranked outside the top 50. If you don't have the weapons to hurt her, to expose her lack of elite movement, she's going to crush you just because her power tennis. Is, is it elite? Can she play elite power tennis, Jamie? Is that a fair assessment? I mean, at this point, I would say, yeah. I mean, she's she's top she's top fifteen in the world for a reason. Um, now, do I think there's still a lot of growth to be had there? Absolutely, right. I mean, there's times you watch her and the setup is there and the execution isn't quite as crisp as it needs to be. That's fine. Um, but I mean, yeah, I think there's still a lot left um, in her ceiling. Yeah, and you look for her again though. Twelve and seventeen versus top fifty opponents. Five and nine versus top twenty. Three and four versus the top ten, which is just interesting. Uh, just a little nugget there. I mean, the big dip is in the return points one, and obviously for her, I think it's it's not the return of serve itself. Although fundamentally, she's an aggressive returner. I think it's just again the quickness. I, I don't think she has the quickest first step. I think she's a long stride mover, and thus when you can take a plus one ball and you know again do some damage with it, get her moving from one side of the court to the other she's not able to get into her plays you are able to draw an error out of her at the same time we talk about the three set record uh for Raba- uh, for Badosa Rabakina 6 and 11 in third sets last season now you look at who some of those third set losses were to two of them to Sabalenka a loss to Jabour a loss to Halep but like you know the three set loss to Cerebez Tormo in Miami or uh you know I mean, some of these three-set losses, Samsonova, Svitolina, Bencic, they're not bad losses by any Pavlachenkova stretch of the imagination. Why she's so intriguing to me is because that's a low-hanging fruit for improvement. It just feels like from a fitness standpoint, that's the missing ingredient because she could hit the ball just about as well as anyone out there. She's got the fundamental serve, as you mentioned, to play on her terms. It feels like as good as she is already, like— I don't know how much better Paula Bedos is actually going to get at tennis moving forward. To your point, I think confidence will be the key for her in terms of the results she sees season in, season out. I think Rabakina can just fundamentally become a better athlete. And if she becomes a better athlete, for lack of a better term, WTA Tour might just be f***ed. No, I, I agree with you there. Well, the last sentiment is, let's say, Gruskin aggressive, but I hear you, right? <laughs> um, absolutely. She has the room to improve, you know, actually just simply things on court right and with her fitness Mm -hmm. and if she starts you know cleaning up that execution a little bit more on her power tennis 100 percent, yeah you shift the focus to somebody like bedosa definitely a different scene right um because for her again as we talked about already it's not necessarily about hey this or that it's not this one thing needs to improve it's more about the fact that hey you can get in here and compete now show that off right so it's a little bit different there um and obviously their play style is very different as well but yeah Rabakina, a lot of room to still improve um and i mean yeah that you talk about somebody who could take over and be top 10 no problem she, she's got to be on the list and especially exciting given that she's a 22 year old yeah I, I agree with you again who ends the season ranked higher Rabakina or Bedosa? 
Uh, I'll stick with Bedosa. Um, she's already mm. got an edge there. Again, I think she's got some confidence from those big results. I'm not exactly sure where Rabakina is at right now because of the last things we saw from her in, what, October? You know, I, I'm not sure if she was 100% healthy. She wasn't putting up good results in those last two tournaments. So I don't I don't know for sure where she's at. So I feel a little bit better going Bedosa in that category. I think that's a fair pick. I would agree with you 2022. I would say by the end of 2030, it wouldn't shock me if Rabakana has the bigger titles. Although Bedosa's already stashed an Indian Wells title. So yeah. yeah, I might be a little out of my mind here. All right. With that in mind, flip gears here. Let's talk about the men. Who is your most intriguing man entering the 2022 season? Yeah, so I mean, I think this is this is what we would call a pretty vanilla pick. Uh, so you can roast me for that <laughs> if you want. But I think it's got to be Alcaraz. Um, I Ooh, mean, so I don't think that's vanilla. I think that's probably, and he's not my pick, but it's an excellent pick. Make the well, case. Well, I, I feel like in my head it just came immediately, and I was like, well, this is fucking obvious, right? Um, I mean, <laughs> yeah. the kid is eighteen. You watch him play, and it's just it's just captivating, right? It's it's hard it's hard to articulate exactly why, but you just watch the kid, the intensity, the competitiveness. I mean, simply how hard he hits the ball when he wants to. I mean, it's just really, really fun to watch. So for him, he's got a ton of momentum. He's surged in the rankings. And if he can capitalize on that, come up with some more big wins at Grand Slams, I mean, th- this this really could be his year to ascend even higher. And again, the kid's 18, right? So there's so much left in his career. Um, but you want to jump on this wagon early and start talking about him now because – you know, if he comes up with some bigger results, maybe does something with that hair, um, we're talking about a superstar. <laughs> Is he just ugly Cristiano Ronaldo from a look well, standpoint? I know that's, that's like... just a cheap shot. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, again, just well, do something with the hair. Can I just say, yeah, if you're... Just do something with the hair. Yeah. We'll figure it out. As a man who's got some hair issues, I, I sympathize, empathize there. And by the way, there are worse comparisons to make than ugly Cristiano Ronaldo. Like, I don't think that's the worst comparison in the world. Yeah, that might have been a cheap shot, and I apologize to Alcaraz Nation out there. Here's my stat for you, Jamie. His So, Carlos Alcaraz, you look last season. He finishes fourth amongst top 50 players in break percentage, 32.5%. Now, obviously, that number factors in some of the challenger success he had at the start of the season. But I'm going to ask you, you take out the challenger success, you root out only his ATP level, and I'll include the next-gen finals in that, ATP level results. Mm -hmm. What do you think his break percentage would rank by in terms of top 50? If you take out what again? Sorry? If you take out all of the challenger success he had at the start of the season. Where he ranks? um... So he ranks fourth with the challenger success at 32.5% break percentage. Where do you think he ranks without it? Uh, I'll say 11. Ranks, uh, excuse me, fifth. The wow. only person who would pass him is Daniil Medvedev wow. at 31.4. His break percentage drops, yeah, drop. 100%. Drops from 33.2% to 30.8%. He was 48-19 overall last season, 32-17 and 17 on the in tour-level matches. To your point, what are we doing here? Like, just look at the numbers. At a certain point, I know tennis is not necessarily a 1,000% data-driven sport, but that is just absurd. 
particularly for an 18-year-old. And sometimes I always say the num- the reason you use statistics in tennis is to you know have numbers back up what you're seeing on court with your eyes. When you watch Carlos Alcaraz play, there's not a doubt in my mind that he is going to be an elite returner moving forward. And you get in trouble when you compare players to the big three. When you say Dimitrov's going to be the next Federer or anyone's going to be the next Djokovic. How many times have you seen someone with a good backhand and you say, well, that's Djokovician. And, you know, people get angry when you compare Carlos Alcaraz to Rafael Nadal. I don't think it's a ridiculous comparison from a tennis standpoint. Obviously, Alcaraz, righty, Nadal, lefty. But the thing Carlos Alcaraz can do on the court and just the viciousness of that forehand, the diversity of his shot selection on the backhand, he's comfortable playing drop shot, playing slice, comfortable hitting that backhand down the line. And then to me, the thing he does better early in his career than Nadal, and I'm not trying to say he's going to go rip off a French Open title this year, although if you want a spicy take, the take is to say he could win the French Open title this year. I don't think that's an absurd take to have, but the thing that makes Alcaraz so impressive is beyond all the other skills, Jamie, he also, he's comfortable moving forward. He's a damn good volleyer, and at 18 years old, it's just like this kid is already so freaking good, even if the only thing that changes in his tennis game is that he physically matures from an 18-year-old to a 25-year-old. That 25-year-old physically mature Carlos Alcaraz is good enough to win a Grand Slam. Uh, yeah, potentially. I think right now, uh, you know, the difficulty is just having him show up with consistency and results, right? And, and this happens with pretty much every young star coming through, right? It doesn't immediately happen all the way, right? He'll he comes off and you know, go looked at his uh, performance in Paris, for example, right? Beats Sinner in two tight straights and then loses to Gaston, um, and that was actually a very fun match. But you get my point, right? Vienna, he bat he beats Berrettini, which is a great win. Gets pretty much routine by Zverev. And so there's, there's still a little bit of work that needs to be done if he wants to make those sort of results consistent. Um, but yeah, he's, he's poking his head up um, and he's showing, he's showing the world, um, you know, what he can do as an 18 year old. And if you want to talk about the Nadal side, I would say there are some more differences if you get into the nitty gritty of what they do and how they like to win points. I mean, go watch Nadal from 15 years ago. It's, it's a little bit different in terms of how many points he's truly dictating. Now, of course, once he has control and he's trying to rip the forehand, yes, but even on the forehand itself, the margin, um, just the, the ball flight, there, there's some big differences there, I would say. But regardless, it's always fun to see that. And his competitive spirit, absolutely. Um, you, you can see the relationship, the similarity between those two things. And so that, that to me is what makes him just even more exciting, right? Like, obviously, you watch the tennis by itself, that's great. But you see how much he cares. You see the passion. That's really what it unlocks for me. Um, and so I'm super excited to see what he can do in 2022. It's a great call, and again, when you look for him, just some final numbers down the home stretch, 13-7 and in first matches last year, Jamie, which I think that's pretty solid. Only seven first-round losses, and, you know, again, 9-4 and in second matches that he plays. He's following up those first-round wins more often than not with victories. Now, of course, you look at any young player and you worry about the second serve. What's freaking absurd about Carlos Alcaraz this early in his career, uh, you know, in terms of second serve points, he ranked ninth amongst top 50 players, winning 53.7% of his second serve points last year. Now, what is so fascinating is he ranked 43rd amongst top 50 players in terms of first serve points one. He's at, I believe, I want to say 68.3%. That's about 4.5% lower than the average of a top 50 player. 
Every young player serve can get better, though, right? And it's just like, again, when the numbers are saying and the eye tests are saying, well, it'd be nice for an 18-year-old serve to get better. But other than that, he's pretty statistically sound already. It's just like upside galore. And, yeah, to your point, again, is it – all right, here's the hot take. More likely to end – and I I tweeted this out, and it was overwhelming tennis Twitter on one side versus the other – more likely to end the year top 10. And I know from a points perspective, it favors one more than the other, but Raducanu or Alcaraz. Like, I don't think it's absurd to say Carlos Alcaraz could end the season top 10. That's how high I think of his game already. Where are you with him? Yeah, I mean, I would say I don't expect either of them to. Um, sure, agreed. But, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess. Like, he's, he's what at this point? 32, uh, yeah. I think. And so on the WTA side, obviously, you, there's, there's different ways and probably more opportunities to break in. You don't have top just holding down points as much at least in as as consistent of a manner i mean and you can see these crazy deep runs and grand slams i mean again we can just point to the most recent one we had 2021 us open it was nuts um and so yeah from that sense you know alcaraz is the more exciting of those because you think there's actually a long-term path to this guy's going to sustain and be the top of tennis do we see the exact same on the other side of that question Eh, i don't know Perhaps not. It was, it was, don't get me wrong. It was a great run. It was phenomenal to see her succeed the way she did and just rip through that draw. But do we see the same long-term sort of thing and say, wow, this is going to be a future person in the sport? I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. It's Again, it's what makes both of them so fascinating entering the season. But Alcaraz in particular, I agree. He is perhaps the most intriguing player. And Okay, now the more I think about it, you're right. That was a very basic pick, but it's also the the correct pick because, I mean, he is just, he could be the guy coming into this 2020s. That's how impressive he's been this early in his career. I've said it a bunch of times over the past, you know, month of offseason coverage. You look at some of the greats and where they were at through age 18, and Jeff Sackman made the really good point of how many other people have been at that point and fallen off as they've gotten older, but, like, it's Nadal and Djokovic are the only two guys who were better than Carlos Alcaraz on tour at this age. That's very nice company for Alcaraz to keep. I'm going to go flip side here, though. You know who really disappointed me in 2021, and I am fascinated to see bounce back here in 2022? It's former World Junior number 1, Miamir Kesmenovic. And Kesmenovic, it's a slow burn in my opinion, when you're watching him play because he doesn't have that overwhelming weapon. It's actually kind of Bedosa-ish in that I think the floor is really high match in, match out. I think he's got that IMG, you know, ball machine quality to him in that, you know, he's just super, super talented. Um, He's certainly a guy who, again, has the pedigree, who seems to know how to win matches at the same time. Like, what is the overwhelming... I, I just... I don't know what to make of Kesmenovic because there are times when I watch him play and I just think this guy is a ball machine. There's a place for this guy in the top 50. He does not beat himself at the same time. Statistically, you know, the whole percentage, he goes 21-19 and 19 in tour-level matches in 2019. He held 81.5% of the time. He held 73% of the time in 2021. Similarly, you know, again, break percentage-wise, he was at 24.2% last year, 21.1% this past season, or excuse me, 24.2 in 2020, 21.1 in 2021. 
I don't understand the statistical regression. Like, I just – I don't understand what to make of Miamir Kesmenovic because I see the outline of a guy who could do so many successful things on a tennis court, but I feel like we talk about it all the time. He's a guy with plan B, plan C, plan D. What is plan A for Miamir Kesmenovic? Where are you with him? Yeah, it's it's difficult. Um, he's definitely made himself a little more hidden, right? I mean, I think there was a time where we were talking about him consistently, and, you know, when we were doing our series in the mini break of those players to watch, he was there, right? Like, we, we were consistently Absolutely. talking about him. And, and granted, you know, that seems like a long time ago. He's only 22, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. you don't want to blow things out of proportion, especially because we've seen how it takes a bit of time for even those next-gen stars to really ascend to the top. I think for me right now, it's just developing the consistent results, right? Because, again, you see flashes of it. But, like, in 2021, there was not that degree of consistency at all. And that's why you see his ranking fall. I mean, and I don't know if you saw this. Did you watch the Davis Cup where where he was playing against Kazakhstan? Um, mm-hmm. That match, yeah, that no, match against Kukushkin was just brutal to watch if you're from his side. Because mm-hmm. he had all the chances of the world. Arguably should have won that match. And then loses what thirteen eleven in that in that third set of breaker, um, and it's just it's tough to watch, right? Because he should be winning those matches, right? Those are the matches where it's like if you're playing Kukushka, like you got to win that match, right? Um, and so there's so many times where I felt like in 2021 where you're like, oh hey, you're in this spot, and then oh, okay, you're going and losing to Nishioka in three sets, right? Oh, you've got this situation, you're losing in straight sets to Alexi Popperin, right? And so it's just he's in a very odd spot right now, and so. I, I don't think, you know, this is going to be the last. If I don't think he's just going to fade into nothing by any means because he's still around and he's still, you know, a hell of a player. But right now he's just got to be able to develop some sort of consistency with results because right now he just, you know, maybe he can win a pretty straightforward first round, lose a second round, a very winnable match. And so that has just been sort of a painful pattern to be observing over the last year or so. Yeah, 17 and 27 overall on the season, 5 and 14 in third sets, Jamie. That's just not going to cut it. And there was a point during the season where I think he lost 11 straight third sets from Roland Garros all the way through to Moscow at the end of the year. That's just not going to do it. No. Like, just respectfully. Excuse me. He lost nine straight. That's that's just unacceptable. And for a guy whose game is predicated on physicality, that third set's got to be where he, you know, where he, he takes off yep. and just. It is the lack of a weapon, and obviously, I think he hits his spots really well. I think his kick serve is more effective on the clay court than it is on the hard court. I think he moves the ball really well around the court, but there are absolutely moments where he'll leave that ball short in the court. And to your point, but at the same time, again, I do think physically he's an incredibly tough out. Like I do think he has the weapons, and he does have the the courts. You know. Again, it's a really subjective quality, and I will be the first to admit I did not play tennis at high, as high of a level as obviously Miramir Kesmenovic, nor you, Jamie, but I think this is the Jamie McDonald model where just some people know how to win tennis points, right? Like some people just are outstanding competitors, and they just put themselves in a position to be there at the end of the match. I think Miamir Kasmenovic has that quality to him, and I know that's absurd, but I do think it always helps when you're number one in the world at anything, whether it be Stevie Johnson, who was the best college tennis player for two years, and just the confidence that gives you. For Kasmenovic, he was the best junior growing up in his grade for quite a bit of time, and obviously he's seen some younger guys surpass him since, but I just think that pedigree matters. And I think Kasmenovic has that quality to him, and that's why I could see another jump forward this season. I'll give you the final word on Kess. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. He's definitely one that I would say interesting to watch. Um, you know, he'll catch my eye a bit more if he does find a way to come up with a little bit bigger of a result because right now I didn't really see many, at least in any sort of consistent manner throughout 2021 that I was like, ooh, let's let's keep an eye on him, right? Um, you know, to your point, he did stay in matches. He just, <laughs> this last season, he just lost a lot of those matches. I mean, with the heartbreaker, I think, was for him at Wimbledon, right? Um, where he had chances yeah. against Batista Goot and loses 3-6 in the fifth. And it's like, again, he's putting himself in those sort of situations, and that's great. Uh, but again, the next thing is like, hey, <laughs> we got to come across the finish line, right? Like losing to, well, he lost first round of the U.S. Open as well in the fifth set. And it's like, all right, those matches, you simply, you simply have to find a way to win. So it's great that he's able to hang around. But right now, it's like kind of the flip side of what we talked about with Bedosa, where Bedosa's staying there, staying there, staying there, getting across the finish line. At least over the last year or so, Kasminovich, he's staying there, staying there, and then losing it in that third or fifth set. So it's a tough spot to be in, but there's also some promising things to look at it, right? There's a very positive spin on that. It's like, man, look about how many great wins you would have had if you were able to just barely get across that finish line, you're so close, right? And so I think that's, that's a promising thing that it can at least be a motivator for him. Is like, listen, you're so close to that. We just need to get to that next level. And again, you're 22 years old, right? So like, you're fine. Yeah. Yeah, no, you absolutely nailed it. One in six in his last seven matches against top 50. The only match that didn't go to a deciding set was the match he won against Dan Evans at Roland Garros last year. So he, to me, is intriguing because if he doesn't bounce back this season, I think that is indicative that, okay, the weapon's not there and the confidence has been shook, and that's just something because I do think Kesmanovic can be not the guy, but a guy in the mix at a bunch of different events uh, throughout the course of his career. But all right, with that said, let's rapid fire through our final picks. Let's start on the women's side. Jamie, give me player number two on your Yeah, player number two is actually Simona Halep. Um, oh, um, she was so she was third. I was going to pick her. I'm very happy you did. Give me your minute on her. Yeah, I mean, listen, there, there's a lot of things to discuss here, uh, especially given that she's a veteran, given that she's been at the top of the game. She's won the slams. It's very interesting to have someone like her in a dynamic where look at the top ten and look at all the inexperience, right? There's not a single player 30 or over currently in the top 10. There's insane amounts of opportunity for points and big results and deep runs at tournaments if someone with her sort of experience can establish that dominance. Now, again, are we going to go back to Serena mid-2010s dominant? No, I, we're not going to see that. But when you're coming out of this sort of conversation, it's like, okay, who are the veterans who have this sort of experience to lean on who can do that? I mean, Kerber has looked decently good, but most likely you're going to have to go somewhere younger, like a Barty or maybe Osaka. But I think Simona Halep, there's some question marks with her injury-wise. Obviously, she had some, some issues and has over the last few years, but when she's healthy – She's incredibly hard to beat, and especially if she's going up against inexperienced players in deep segments of big tournaments, that's a huge difference, right? They've got all the nerves. They have to figure out a way to beat Simona Halep. Halep's like, I've done this. I've been here. And so I think there's a huge opportunity for her this year and probably for the next couple of years to establish that as her sort of reputation um, as opposed to what she has been now, which has just kind of fallen out of the mix a little bit. So again, there's big injury p pushes there, and so that's why. But uh, yeah, she's one to watch for sure, and I think that she can be somebody who can establish a bit of dominance at the top. 
I think she was quietly the best player during the 2020 season. And of course, it got lost because she ends up losing to Sviantec, uh in that French Open, and Sviantec blitzes her, and Sviantec ends up the story of the season. She, you know, makes semifinals of Australia, loses six and five to Muguruza outside, you know, 23 and three overall in the year. She was in her prime, and she was the best player in the world. And then a pandemic hit. And then injuries hit. Yeah. So I think that's an excellent – every point you made, I would echo, and I would just add that analysis to it, that she is not far off from that 2020 season where she was smack dab in the prime of her career. And just respectively, I agree with you. I thought she was better than everyone else. So I see her in the mix this season completely as well. My other women's pick, and I tweeted about her so I can be brief here, is Jill Teichman. Like, there's no denying. We've seen flashes of excellence from Jill Teichman over these past few seasons. And obviously, I'm biased because I called the Lexington event at the start post-pandemic where she makes the final before losing to Jennifer Brady. And all of us saw her, you know, this run, beat Osaka in three sets, Benchich post-Olympics in straights, Pliskova post-Wimbledon in straights at Cincinnati before bowing out to Barty. You know, she makes the final there. She can be that good. At the same time, 24-20. and 20. Over the course of last season, there's a point where she lost, you know, uh, excuse me, she lost eight of 10 matches and she lost, uh, excuse me, 10 of 13 matches in the point in the middle of the season. That lack of consistency is the missing piece because I do think she has the weapons. I love her lefty game. I love the heavy spin. I think her game translates across surfaces as well. I could see Jill Teichman having a Sakari, Conteve, you know, Bedosa-type season. Maybe not quite top 10, top 15 like those three were last season, but I could see her going from number 37 career high where she's at this year to getting into that top 25 mix, getting into that top 20 mix. How about this? A Jessica Pagula-type season where we just see the consistency finally click for her, and then she mixes in the big result or the two big results throughout the course of the season because I do think she has the weapons, and I do think, again, the all-around skill set you know, she's about top 30, you know, she's not top 20 club, she's top 35 club. Nothing elite quite yet, but I think that's due to the lack of consistency rather than any structural issues. I could see a big year from her. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I like that pick. Um, again, yeah, I think I think top 25, definitely realistic for her. Um, it just comes down to what runs can she make and where. And, and again, this is another player who we've seen, it's like, man, that's a great win. Uh, not quite backed up. You know what I mean? Uh, and don't get me wrong. She can be competitive with the truly the best in the world here. Um, and you see her, what, what was the one where she just completely ran through Angie Kerber? Um, I think that was Osterville, I believe. Um, and so yeah. it's like, you see that, right? And it's like, oh man, Kerber has been looking pretty good. And she just gets absolutely rocked. Well, then Teichman comes through, barely beats Allie Risk in three, and then gets beaten straight by Kvitova. So, you know, I, I, I agree with you there. I think she's an interesting one and definitely top 25 uh, for sure a possibility for her. Yeah, that's why, again, intriguing is it could go one of two ways. Like Mm -hmm. that inconsistency could plague her or we see the jump forward. All right, give me your men's pick. Yeah, the other one on the men's side, um, again, fairly obvious to me, at least jumped out. I think it's got to be Casper Ruud. Um, You know, top 10, uh, he's at his career high eight at this point. First of all, can he maintain that? Right? Uh, is this just a fluke? Oh, we got into the top 10 and we're not staying? Or is Casper Ruud here to stay? And, And I will say, the positive side for me uh, and for him on this i should say he's looked very good in how he's been able to adapt to not just clay right i think he's been incredibly smart in how look he knows that clay is where he is comfortable he's used that to gain confidence on all other surfaces and now he looks like he belongs no matter where i mean he was at he was at the tour finals and he belonged there 
right? I mean, he took out Andre Rublev in a good match. Yeah, he got beat up pretty good by both Medvedev and Djokovic, but I mean, he belonged there, and that's a fast indoor court versus what everyone was giving him trouble for so long about. It was like, oh, all you can play on is clay, and instead of playing these tournaments, you're just going down to play another clay 500 or a clay 250 or whatever. And so, to me, this has been a really, really fun step in the right direction for Casper Ruud because he's been able to prove, hey, no, I belong here on this world stage. And so, to me, it's like, all right, can we sustain that? Because I would love to see it. I love the fact that he takes that foundation and is able to give himself confidence so that he convinces himself and the world that he belongs on that highest stage. I just want to see if he can do it. So that's the one for me. And again, world number eight, if he can stay in the top 10, I'd be really, really pleased with him because that's, that's just a great effort. Well, it's so interesting you say rude. And by the way, I agree with you. I think he proved it on the hard courts last year. Now he's got to make a second. He doesn't have to make. We need to see him make a second week of a Grand Slam this year, though, to just see him make that next step, right? Because it's crazy to me that there's not a quarterfinal, particularly at Roland Garros, under his resume next. That's the expectation for him, certainly, entering 2022. But the guy who he was linked with early in his career that obviously he surpassed last season, and a guy who just continues to befuddle me, case in point, his loss yesterday, 0-3 to Roberto Bautista Agut, like, Christian Guerin should not be this bad on non-clay court surfaces, <laughs> and he is my second guy, and I just don't understand it, Jamie. Like, just fundamentally, I don't understand, because I watch his backhand, yeah, it's flat, and it's a shot that sets up the forehand on the clay court so well, and obviously, he likes to play slice, he likes to hit the big kick serve to set up the plus one forehand, no matter where he is on the court, but fundamentally and structurally, it just baffles me that Christian Guerin continues to be so bad on hard courts that his break percentage is 11 percentage points worse on on hard courts than it is versus on clay courts. And you look for him throughout the course of his career at the ATP level. Again, he's won multiple titles on clay courts. He's 58 and 30 overall, makes a round of 16 last year at Roland Garros. You flip that again, 58 and 30 on clay courts, 18 and 34 on hard courts. His hold percentage pretty constant, 1% worse on hard courts than clay. But his break percentage goes from 29.2 to 18.5 when he makes the surface switch. I don't understand that because it's not Robin Soderling. He's not just taking these wallops on the forehand side. I think it's a pretty condensed modern stroke. The backhand, very condensed. It's, it's Now he doesn't generate much pace on it. He doesn't generate much spin, but it just, I, I, I don't get it, Jamie. I just fundamentally don't understand it. Do you? I mean, no, I don't think probably, you know, even including himself really gets it. I'm sure it's a frustrating point for him as well. He's like, what the hell? Why can't I figure this out? Right. And, and you know, it, you mentioned the, the similar, the similarities there between him and rude and rude has found a way to succeed on clay like Aaron, and then take that and say, yep, regardless of the surface, I belong here and take it to, you know, grass even because Wimbledon, if I'm not mistaken, is rude's best result actually. Right. Yeah, at a grand slam, so, which correct. is hilarious. Yes, um, it makes no sense. But again, he's been able to take that from a mental side and say, "Hey, yep, I belong at this stage. Great, I'm going to use it." Garen, I mean, it just seems that that frustration is sort of boiling inside him internally as well, because it's like, you know, you go to the technicalities of it. Maybe the ball just feels like it's getting on him so fast, and he doesn't have the proper time to set. Obviously, that I know, you know, hurts you when you're trying to dictate with it with a bigger. I mean, I don't know, man. There's there's a lot of questions here. I think simply he's just not comfortable on those other surfaces. And so right now it's just 
probably building frustration. Um, you would hope that he could continue to have success on the clay and then give him some confidence like Rude has been able to do. But yeah, man, I don't know. I mean, your guess is as good as mine on this one. Um, it, it is it is pretty painful to watch because you know how drastically different a match would have been if it was on a different surface. And then you see it on a hard court and you're like, what are you doing? Um, and, and it's just a little bit difficult to pinpoint. But I mean, yeah, some of it just comes down to comfortability on that surface. It's like, man, that ball's on you a little bit quicker that's tough to deal with right and, and if you don't find a way to combat it and you feel worse about yourself mentally already because you're thinking oh my god it's another hardcore match i can't get through this it's just going to build on itself so yeah i would love to see him sort of break out of that cycle and show some deep runs on other surfaces in 2022 i, I just haven't seen what i need to to be confident in saying that that'll happen that's why it's so intriguing because points wise he had put himself in a position to make a top 10 push he needed like six wins seven wins on hard courts he goes three and eight last year you want to know who those three wins were over norbert gombos in four sets at the u.s open who then beats him Owen one at davis cup on hard courts like come on now advantage gombos he also beats alex mulcan in davis cup he beats ernesto escobedo at indian wells escobedo of course had to come through qualifying to get to that second round so he was four matches deep green was playing his first match of the tournament i just don't get it like i know the backhand is short and flat and sometimes attackable but this guy is too good of an athlete his surf forehand combination too good he should not continue to struggle to the extent that he has on 2022. And my thing is, if he just becomes like a 500 player on the non-clay court surfaces, that's a top 15 guy for the rest of his career. Yeah. That's why it's intriguing to me, right? Because that's the upside. Yep. I agree. There, there's nothing crazy or special that needs to happen, right? It's just you go through you go through his hard courts results and you're like, okay, well, you can't lose to all of these guys, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it's like this is just painful to watch. And anytime, you know, he does have an opportunity, you mentioned it there when he played Gombos um, at the U.S. Open, then what he has, an, he has a chance to open things up, loses to Laxon in the second round. And it's like, yeah, okay. And, you know, he'll, he'll give himself a chance and then boom, retracted right away. So yeah, if there's a push for him, you mentioned that. I think that's a great way to frame it for him and in terms of being realistic. It's like, hey, listen, You've got this expertise on one surface. That's phenomenal. That's great. Let's just get to this standard point on your other surfaces, and then we'll get to that higher level. Because, I mean, he has gotten – he's gotten to, what, 17 in the world, and he's – where is he sitting now? Yeah, 17. Yeah, that's he's still, he's he's still the 17. Year. So that's the thing is it's like that's still – I believe that's still his career high. Um, and yeah. so he had a ton of momentum from some of those clay results. Again, he just wasn't able to build it when it went to the other surfaces. So um, yeah. it's interesting, man. Maybe there was just something in the air at Wimbledon this year because he kind of made a he, he kind of made a decent push at Wimbledon as well. Um, he didn't have crazy wins, but he made fourth round until he got you know smoked by Djokovic. So it, he's an interesting case for sure. Absolutely, some parallels with Rude, but Casper has just been able to show um, you know a little bit more consistency across the board than Garen has. Yeah, it's just, again, it's baffling, and that's why it's so intriguing. Both Kesmenovich and Garen, for me, as you can tell, I'm, guys, a little misfitty. You know, I like the misfits. I like the guy who showed me some stuff but haven't quite put it together. That's what I'll be watching for this season. Uh, but again, with that in mind, final question for you. It's the most important question I'm going to ask moving forward. When do we get the conference title gear for Rockhurst this year? Is it going to be May 1st, May 2nd? You know, what do I have to do to lock in on one of those hats? Oh, boy, man. I don't know. I can't be <laughs> I can't, I can't be saying things like that out on the <laughs> uh, But, uh, nah, man, it's going to be a fun season. And it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be two two really young teams. 
Um, so a lot of motivation, a lot of energy. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So I can't can't promise anything right now. Can't speak anything out of existence, right? We can't can't be having that. But uh, no, I appreciate the enthusiasm, and yes, I do hope to see you uh, coming to those matches when we travel a little bit closer to you guys. You know I will do every effort to make as many matches as I can this season, Jamie. We are all rooting for Rockhurst here at Crack Rackets. We move over Michigan. Uh, what Wolverines? It's a Rockhurst podcast moving forward. Obviously, on our college tennis podcast, week in, week out, we will be referencing how Rockhurst, Rockhurst performs each and every week. And again, we're rooting for you. I am so grateful you're willing to take the time, obviously, to come on this show here today. It's just It's been great getting the chance to chat tennis with you once again. And of course, I have to give a shout out to our friends at for Forgot to do this at the start. I was so excited to have Jamie. But shout out to our friends at Tennis Point for their continued support of our efforts here as well. For any of you looking for any sort of update on your tennis equipment, tennis-point.com. Promo code is CR15. You get 15% off your order. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, tennis-point.com. Promo code is CR15. Of course, if you have missed any of our off-season coverage. As we prepare for this 2022 season, you can catch up on it all on our website, CrackRackets.com. Like, rate, subscribe, review to this show, the Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews Podcast, our YouTube channel to ensure you don't miss out on anything. Of course, if you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at CrackRackets. You want to message me directly, I am at A.L. Gruskin, Jamie. We have made the switch in the Twitter username, and the reason I've done so is I'm just so sick of hearing from Ben Rothenberg saying, when are you going to switch? When are you going to switch? When are you going to switch? Well, the switch has officially been made at A.L. Gruskin. Shout out to you at Great Shot Pod. You were too kind to me over the years, but the change has been made. With that all in mind, a shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Flagner and Daniel Westoff, for the fuck of an any job they do day in, day out, making all this possible. Final word goes to you, Jaime. Any final thoughts as we begin 2022? Uh, listen, I understand that it's a tough – I understand they can be a tough breakup away from the Twitter handle. I, I left <laughs> Slice Life Baby to become Rock 10 Coach, uh, so it's just – it's just the way it goes, right? But uh, no, you want to talk about fresh starts, new beginnings, new year, 2022. That's what you got to do, man. So no, hey, appreciate you having me on. It's uh, It's been a ton of fun, and hopefully I'll get back here uh, again soon. Absolutely. I will be calling on you during the Australian Open. But with all of that said, for my fantastic co-host, James Foster McDonald, their super producer, Sligder and Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Hi, mate. What do we tell our listeners? That's a break.